0: We make decisions every day. While some of them are small, others can have a huge impact on our own lives and those around us. But how often do we stop to think about how we make decisions? Welcome to Deciding Factors, a podcast from GLG. I'm your host, Eric Jaffe. In each episode, I'll talk to world-class experts and leaders in government, medicine, business, and beyond, who can share their firsthand experiences and explain how they make some of their biggest decisions. We'll give you fresh insights to help you tackle the tough decisions in your professional life. In the two years since we launched Deciding Factors, I've had the chance to chat with an incredible group of decision makers across a wide range of expertise, from healthcare and education to the future of social media and the workplace. But today's episode is our first with an individual who's made decisions regarding our military in times of war, decisions that impact the safety and well-being of millions of people. I wanted to know, How exactly does one navigate such extraordinarily high-stakes situations? Fortunately, in addition to his decades of experience, our guest today brought thoughtfulness, candor, and introspection to help walk us through that process. Ambassador Douglas Lute is a retired three-star general and the former U.S. ambassador to NATO. In 2007, then-President George W. Bush appointed him to oversee the war efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan, a role that earned him the title, one that doesn't exactly thrill him, of War Czar. Ambassador Lute additionally served as Director of Operations on the Joint Staff, where he oversaw U.S. military operations worldwide. Listen in as Ambassador Lute and I discuss what it means to be an effective leader in the military, the lessons he thinks we have, or for that matter, haven't learned from our military operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, and even the unexpected details of his first meeting with his former boss, President George W. Bush. Ambassador Lute, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, it's great to be with you.
0: Perhaps you could start by just giving us a little bit of background. How did you end up in the military and eventually becoming the war czar? Well,
1: my military background goes way back because I left uh, Michigan City, Indiana, where I grew up, largely aspiring to be a basketball player, which uh, every 17 and 18 year old in Indiana so aspires, uh, and went to the uh, military academy at West Point. Based on my experience at West Point, I never looked back. And so by the time I became a general officer, uh, served first in Central Command, so the sort of the Middle East, centered on the Middle East, as the operations officer, as a two-star general, I then went to the Joint Staff, so in the Pentagon, uh, and served in a similar position, but now as a three-star, and and overwatching military operations worldwide. And it was from that position that I went to the White House, and I went to the White House because... President Bush decided, uh, as part of his surge into Iraq, that he wanted closer personal attention. He wanted to pay day to day attention to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And therefore, he needed a senior staff officer, literally just down the stairway from the Oval Office, that he could call on when he had questions. And he didn't want to pose these questions bureaucratically through the Secretary of Defense, through the, you know, and so forth. He wanted to cut through all that and have someone he could turn to. That's what took me to the White House in July of 2007.
0: Did he know you, interview you personally for that role, just out of curiosity?
1: I did not know him, but he did interview me one-on-one for the role, yeah. Got it. It's funny, uh, in the course of the interview, so we're sitting in the Oval Office in front of the fireplace there where, a lot of foreign dignitaries sit as they're meeting with the president. And we talked about a number of things, and and I said, uh, you know, Mr. President, this job is all about supporting you in your decision to surge troops in Iraq. And frankly, my advice from the Pentagon was not to surge. So I was not in favor of your surge. And he, and I said, I just felt like I should tell you that, because if you're about to hire me, <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be a good thing for you to know this, right? And uh, President Bush, to his credit, said, uh, "I have no problems with that." Uh, he said there are good arguments on both sides, and uh, and he he literally said, "I love you for telling me that." Wow! <laughs> yeah, which is uh, which will always stick with me. And I think it's a measure of his character. He didn't shy away from dissent. He literally hired me to be just down the hall, despite the fact it, supporting him in this decision. The surge, right? Despite the fact that before the decision, I had argued the another case, so it was uh, it's a measure of the man, I think.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating anecdote. In doing my research, I noted that Vice President Cheney famously said, "Your role was created to quote ride roughshod over the bureaucracy to make sure we get the job done." <laughs> um, so, what is and what was the role of the War czar, and and then what kind of decisions were you making in that role?
1: To begin, um, I think a touch of context, right? So I went to the White House as a active duty U.S. Army three-star general in the summer of 2007, in the midst of what has become uh, known as the Bush surge into Iraq. And this was President Bush's uh, set of decisions uh, taken to try to reverse the sectarian violence between Sunni and Shia Iraqis which was tearing Iraq apart at the seams. And in the course of that decision to surge about 30,000 more US troops, President Bush took a uh, related decision that he wanted to bring onto his staff someone who could keep him apprised day to day of happenings in Iraq and somewhat Afghanistan as well, but in 2007, it was 90% Iraq. And then um, not only keep him informed, but look for points of friction uh, or underperformance in the U.S. war effort uh, and try to relieve those tensions, try to smooth things out, try to coordinate from the White House in an effort to facilitate the war effort. The press actually named me the czar, the war czar. And I I didn't actually take very kindly to that naming because I wasn't really in charge of anything. Uh, I was a facilitator. I was a coordinator. I was a staff officer in the West Wing of the White House, but I wasn't in the chain of command. But it did have me uh, report to President Bush six days a week for the last 18 months of his administration every day, seven o'clock in the morning, with a report uh, on overnight events. Uh, And then also uh, gave me a seat at the National Security Council table in the White House Situation Room for uh, the decisions, the key decisions on Iraq and Afghanistan.
0: You were adjacent to reporting to and had the ear of the most senior decision maker of one of the most consequential decisions, arguably, in U.S. foreign policy history, could you walk us through how you if at all were able to influence President Bush um, or other members of the cabinet to make decisions? How did you approach your role from that perspective?
1: Many people with whom I've spoken about this role uh, imagine that I was fully immersed in the military campaign. Uh, actually, I was much more consumed day-to-day with the politics of, of Iraq. And and my role was to Keep things on track, so keep us performing against the program, timelines, objectives, and so forth. Keep the president informed, and, and most important, identify for the president um, those points where we appear to be drifting off path, off course, uh, and then offer alternatives, options, uh, to bring us back on track. So you have to do sort of the math of resources and um and what this would mean uh in terms of dollars, troops, diplomats, allies, time uh, and so forth uh and and this process leads to the NSC meeting with the president and the chair with a series of options under consideration. It is not the role of the NSC staff to put our finger on one option or another, uh, but rather as arbitrators of the process giving the cabinet officers, the bureaucratic players around the table, equal opportunity to have their say, to present their views, and then whether there's agreement or disagreement, uh, present that picture to the president, who ultimately is the decider.
0: I wonder now, with the benefit of some time to reflect and think it through, what were the key attributes that you need either from a leader or from the team that is presenting to that leader in order to make a good decision?
1: Well, the first and foremost uh, attribute, I think, of a good decision is a decision that is evidence-based, that is fact-based. So one of the obligations, I think, of the National Security Council staff in preparing uh, a decision memorandum or preparing uh, an upcoming decision-making process is to search out the facts. And you know this would seem at the White House to be not that difficult, right? I mean, if you can't get the facts at the White House, where can you get them? <laughs> you have access to the entire power of the U.S. government. Um, you can get military facts from the Pentagon. You can get diplomatic facts, foreign affairs facts from the State Department. We can tap into the intelligence community and so forth. Um, but what I found was that even inside the U.S. government, um, there is a tendency sometimes for insufficient expertise, or there's a tendency that we disregard sources of facts, sources of evidence that can really help inform the decision making process. So, here I'm referring to uh, open sources, that is, public sources, publicly available sources. I'm referring to uh, the views of some of our key allies or international partners who may have deeper experience in a complicated set like Afghanistan and Iraq than we do. Uh, Here, I'm referring to the American academic community. Uh, In Afghanistan, if you really want to understand the fabric of the problem, the texture of the challenges in Afghanistan, you've got to read Barnett Rubin from NYU. You've got to read Thomas Barfield, um, a political scientist who's written deeply on Afghanistan.
0: Could you talk about how your experience serving impacted the roles that you held, you know, these very senior roles at the White House and then as an ambassador? And specifically, how do you think about the impact of these decisions on the troops on the ground, which, of course, you have firsthand experience with versus having what some might call like the emotional distance that is necessary to make the right decisions on behalf of the country? Sure. So, I mean, it helped in a number of ways. First of all, I, you know, I spoke
1: military ease, right? right. <laughs> I mean, so I was able to interpret the military reports and the intelligence reports received because I spoke that language. Um, and and this actually is sort of interesting, right? That there are different bureaucratic languages which sometimes require interpretation. So I was I was fluent in in, in military. Uh, processes, military capabilities, um, and sort of the military culture. That that was very helpful. It was also helpful because I was able, in both roles, both at the White House and later at NATO, I was able to serve, I hope, as a helpful bridge between other military officials and civilian officials. Uh, Because I did have, in a way, I sort of had a foot in each camp. I wouldn't say that This was a dramatic influence on the courses of action developed, but it was a constant reminder that this was not just bureaucracy, that this was not just a decision-making exercise that resulted in a presidential speech to the nation, and then we could move on to the next such decision. And then also understanding that presence in the field um, gave me an understanding Uh, for the importance of visiting the theaters of war as frequently as possible. Uh, And I tended to go to um, Iraq or Afghanistan regularly. So at some points in my career, monthly, at other times it waned to perhaps quarterly. But in each of these on-scene visits, I made an effort to get out of the headquarters buildings, out of Baghdad, outside of Kabul in Afghanistan, and try to get down and get to to refresh my sense of the 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 feel, the texture of the problem uh as seen at the very tactical level.
0: You've been a leader and also watched a lot of leaders. What do you think the the right balance is between confidence and intellectual humility?
1: Well, first of all, I think there needs to be for for the most effective decision makers, a balance uh, struck between this search for evidence and the search for facts on which to base a decision, and in almost an equal and perhaps opposite search for the facts that you don't know or the healthy suspicion that you're about to be surprised by something that you didn't consider. So it's not that you knowingly have a fact and you set it aside or dismiss it. In my experience, the bigger challenge is to cast a wide enough net, a wide enough search for evidence and facts to bring into the decision-making process. Now, I suppose a case in point might be um, the the assumption or the belief uh, in the Bush administration before the invasion of Iraq that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, right? And there was clearly some evidence that he had weapons of mass destruction, but we now know because of post-invasion evidence that there was also evidence, there were also facts that he did not and that he had disposed of them uh, earlier. And some of the evidence in support of Saddam having WMD, I think was not sufficiently scrutinized tested questioned in a in again in a deliberate search for evidence of course the essence of leadership is that you have a plan to address a particular situation a problem right and and you take on the challenge of trying to craft a solution but in most major public policy to include foreign policy issues right they are a so complex uh, with so many different players, uh, that in fact, it's much less certain than one might imagine that we can actually engineer in a sort of a good American approach, right? There's a problem, we're going to engineer a solution. Um, most of these problems defy that idea. They defy a precise engineering of an outcome. And, and you know, I I've been you know, a professional student of war and conflict because of my military background, that certainly plays out in war, right? But it plays out in other public policy arenas as well. Think about our challenges with COVID. The challenge of COVID was not something that could simply be engineered. You couldn't just engineer an outcome. For example, we certainly on the positive side didn't imagine that a COVID vaccine would be discovered and delivered as quickly as it was. Perhaps on the opposite end of the scale, we didn't anticipate there'd be so many Americans reluctant to be vaccinated. So these are things that you can perhaps not always fully anticipate in the policymaking process. And again, it it leads you to this requirement to have some humility about what you know and what you don't know and position yourself not all in. On one course of action, come hell or high water, but in the center of the tennis court, if you will.
0: The US military is famous for its uh, lessons learned exercise. I wondered what are like the big, you know, one, two lessons you think the US military has learned and should learn from the last couple decades of Iraq and Afghanistan?
1: Well, let me let me play with your question just a bit, because I think there's a big difference between lessons available to be learned, right, and lessons learned. But, you know, frankly, in my experience, even in the U.S. military, which prides itself in in adapting based on experience, so learning lessons, it's just too soon after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the last 20-year experience. It's frankly too soon to assume that these lessons have actually been learned. I think there are lessons out there subject to learning, right? There are lessons that we should learn, but I don't think we're there yet. So for example, just in a in a narrow example uh in my own military experience, the US Army, right? I think we have to take a very sober look of how we uh, build, partner indigenous security forces. So I don't think we can be satisfied with the multi-year, multi-hundreds of billions of dollar efforts expended to build the Iraqi security forces or the Afghan security forces. Now maybe, maybe the fact that we're doing this again now with the Ukrainians, right? This gives us a new, a new vignette, a new model on which to work. But certainly the experience in Iraq and Afghanistan leaves us wanting for how we go about doing this. And if we appreciate that in the future going forward, uh, working with partners and allies, building indigenous partner capacity is gonna be a key role for the US Army. And frankly, in my view, given our 20 years, we've had two decades of experience in Iraq and Afghanistan, I don't see in Sufficient changes at at that level that reflect that we've actually done the learning.
0: Super interesting, and I'll ask you a follow up question that you might not like, or maybe you'll disagree with the the kind of premise of it. But can you imagine a fundamentally different way of prosecuting Operation Iraqi Freedom that that like may have? Led to a more positive outcome than the one that the U.S. military chose.
1: Well, I, I think in shorthand, you know, the the military campaign that led to the fall of Saddam and the seizing of power uh, in Baghdad and so forth, right? The initial six or eight weeks um, can be deemed a military success. Um, but where we fell short was, so now what? You know, so now we own this. Um, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to administer Iraq? And I, I think, quite frankly, that some of the pre-war assumptions about what would follow the fall of Saddam border on hubris and border on even a touch of arrogance that we knew what would happen. We imagined we knew what we would what would happen with the fall of Saddam. And of course, those assumptions, that's those scenarios played played out very differently. And so that left us unprepared because in frankly we didn't enter that war with sufficient humility and and develop post Saddam options that accounted for something like the very virulent insurgency that cropped up within weeks of the fall of Baghdad. So Actually, when I talk about, you know, decision-making based on evidence and that balanced by humility, um, I think the post-Saddam scenario in Iraq is a good example of what I'm getting at. And it's one of the reasons it's on my lessons list, <laughs> right?
0: Lastly, Ambassador Lute, if you were privately advising somebody who were, let's say, overseeing our efforts with Ukraine, if you could give kind of one big macro piece of advice for someone, what would it be?
1: So it would be, in short, to take no shortcut on strategy. What I mean by this is that strategy can be defined as the, the alignment of ends, ways, and means over time. Okay? So the alignment of ends, what you're trying to accomplish, with ways, the methods, the techniques, how you're trying to reach those objectives. And then finally, the resources, the means, right? And in a classic sense, we only have a strategy when ends, ways, and means logically are aligned. And then you continue to check that alignment over time, because strategy tends to fall out of alignment, right? You have... You know your objectives change, or you have too few resources, and so forth. So I think the challenge now, in the first hundred days of the Ukraine war, is to be as clear as possible on our objectives. And here I give President Biden a credit. A couple of weeks ago, he he published in the New York Times an op-ed that that was a statement of his objectives, right? Uh, but then I would ask. You know, have we assembled the appropriate ways to achieve those objectives? And most important, have we fully resourced the project, the war aim? And I think there's evidence that, that this is a work in progress. Have we been pushing the Europeans hard enough to break their reliance on Russian energy? What are we doing about breaking the sea blockade? that's essentially blocking one third of the world's supply of wheat uh, coming out of the Black Sea. Um, How are we approaching that? I haven't seen much on that. So there are some ways here that could be further considered. And then finally, in terms of resources, I'll go back to where I'm most familiar, the military angle. I think, frankly, we've done a historically good job of providing military assets to the Ukrainians, but I don't think we've given them enough fast enough. Um, If this were a moving target, the war in Ukraine, right, and we were on a rifle range and we're trying to hit the target, right, I think our pattern has been that we're constantly shooting behind the target as it moves away from us Uh, with too few resources and the resources we provide too slow being provided too slowly. So we have work to do. And the one key thing that I would focus on would be this alignment of ends, ways and means with a mechanism to constantly check it over time to ensure that these three elements of strategy uh,
0: stay aligned. Well, Ambassador Lute, thank you again. A really, really fantastic conversation. Really appreciate you coming on.
1: Okay, thanks. It's always good to be with GLG.
0: That was the singular Ambassador Douglas Lute. While it's extremely difficult to analyze the complexities of war, even with the benefit of hindsight, making rational decisions amidst the fervor chaos of wartime is exponentially more challenging. My conversation with Ambassador Luke provided the rare opportunity to hear from a leader who navigated the fog of war from so many different perspectives. We hope you'll join us next time for a brand new episode of Deciding Factors featuring another one of GLG's network members. Every day, GLG facilitates conversations with experts across nearly every industry and geography, helping our clients with insight that leads to true clarity. Feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. Or email us at decidingfactors at if you have feedback or ideas for future show topics. For Deciding Factors in GLG, I'm Eric Jaffe. Thanks for listening.